Amen. You may take a seat. Well, today we continue our series of studies in the book of Samuel, particularly when we're in this section of the book of Samuel where we've been introduced to King Saul, and now it's very much the, the, the part where we deal with the fall of Israel's first king. And this will mark our second chapter in, the, in chapter 14, our second sermon in chapter 14. Our last sermon, as you, some of you will remember, uh, featured a, a coward, uh, uh, cowed uh, king in, uh, in, in Gibeah uh, as uh, the Philistines were uh, so mighty and so great in number, more number, uh, numbers than, than the sands on the seashore. And there he was, a rejected king, fearful being counseled by a, a rejected priest from the priestly line of Eli. And while both men and the greater part of the people of God, Israel, was fearful, hiding, completely helpless and bereft of any gods of God's word, we saw that there was one and his armor bearer that had faith, that had trust in God, Jonathan, Saul's son had the audacity, had the, the temerity, he had the faith to embark on this otherwise suicidal mission. The two of them, Saul and his armor bearer, faced off against the Philistine garrison. We saw how he believed that, God of, that the God of Israel would undertake and fulfill his promises. And he placed, not as life in, the, in his wits or in his strength. He placed his life in, the, in God's hands and God delivered him. And God delivered Israel on that day as, as the last verse from, from our text from last week. In fact, we should have read it. There, verse 23, chapter 14. So the Lord saved Israel that day. The actions of Jonathan that day uh, amounted not to God uh, undertaking for just Jonathan, but Jonathan as a representative of the people of God. His victory was Israel's victory. And we learned last week how one man, who re, uh, when one man rejects God, God raises up another to do his will. King Saul was not godly. God called another one who was godly to enact his deliverance. And that's how we finished last week, with this positive note. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth Haven. But there is somewhat of an ironic twist in the text, isn't there? Especially when you read verse 23 and verse 24 together. The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shift, shifted to Beth Haven, and the men of Israel were distressed that day. The end there can be translated, but... Or now the people of God were distressed that day. The, the, the contrast is stark. Why are they distressed? Well, the, the author of Samuel doesn't leave us wondering, does he? He tells us, For Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying that cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance upon my enemies. The people were distressed. The people were, the, the literal translation, the people were hard-pressed. Not because of, uh, uh, of anything else in that day, 
the Lord that actually wrought salvation and deliverance in their midst. They should be rejoicing. But here's Saul. There is no good, uh, good opportunity that he doesn't take to ruin the occasion. Here's Saul, uh, the, uh, the polar opposite of King Midas. Everything that King Midas in mythology touched turned into gold. Saul seems to be the polar opposite. Everything he touches, he turns gold into lead or into, into tin. Apparently, what should be a day of great feasting and rejoicing, he institutes a fast. And the people are distressed about it. The irony of the text is clear. A day of celebration is turned into a wake. A day of deliverance is turned into distress. A day of feasting is turned into a fast. He, he, he ruins the occasion. Which tells us, doesn't it, when leaders, when those in authority are ungodly, their decisions affect the, the, the people living under them in such a way that, that it ruins uh, and it hurts them. Because usually when they're ungodly, their decisions are self-centered and self-indulgent. And in a sense, that's what we see here, certainly. In the midst of a well-needed, tremendous victory, Two men versus a garrison of Philistines uh, win, and, and now they just have to uh, pursue them as they are uh, um, confused and dazed by what has been happening. It's, it's there for the taking. And Saul, instead of allowing uh, things to flow naturally, instead of being an instrument in God's hands for good and for celebration, he ruins the occasion. In the iron, he goes further than that. Because the word there for distressed, we already saw this word, didn't we? Back in chapter 13, as we were uh, uh, reading through that passage, that the people of God were hard-pressed, they were distressed in chapter 13. Why? Because of the Philistines. The Philistines were so numerous, that the Philistine pressure was such that they felt distressed, hard-pressed. And now, instead of being the Philistines that were actually defeated that day, bringing the distress, it's Saul that turns the deliverance into distress. My question is why? The text doesn't tell us directly why Saul does this, but I think we can imply at least three different options for why Saul did this. Maybe he didn't want the army to lose any time. Well, we've, we've had victory over the Philistines. If they stop now to eat and to, and to put some food in their mouths, if they stop now to feast, uh, the, the enemy is going to get away. Let us pursue them. No one eats now. Let's, let's get on with it. Maybe that was the case. But if that was the case, it's unwise. It's foolish for him to do that. In fact, Jonathan himself, he, or the author of, uh, of Samuel himself, he tells us that, that this was, was not the case. That the fact that he were placed under this oath, the people were faint. And Jonathan himself then says that had they, had they not been placed under this cursed oath, the, the slaughter of the Philistines would be much greater. It's unwise. Because yes, you may gain some time, as Matthew Henry says, you may gain some time in, in pursuing the, the, the enemy because you don't lose time to eat. But then you don't have any strength to fight them off. And it's heavy. Yeah, he, he, he could have as well have said, look, don't eat too much. No feasting. This is not a time to, to, to sit around and have huge uh, 
Christmas-like uh, suppers and with all the uh, with seven course meals, just eat enough to be to have strength and go. He could have forbade, forbade them to from uh, um, from feasting, but just say just eat enough to continue. You can taste to to quench the the, the, the to stop the hunger. But no, he, he, he outright forbids even to taste, even to to put something in their mouths. He calls for a fast. And it's wrong. It's wrong in, in the sense as well that um, why did he have to put a, a curse on it? Wasn't he the authority? Wasn't he able to command people to just go, uh, don't eat? Does he need to put an anathema on it and to curse the people? Uh, doesn't he have any, any discipline within the army? But I don't think that was his primary motivation. I think some of his words tell us that his motivation was slightly more self-centered. Look at how he is, uh, expresses it there. Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. That's self-centeredness. He wants to get them back. He wants vengeance. But th isn't there something wrong here? Because usually... When you find this language of taking vengeance on someone's enemies, it's not on the person's enemies, but it's on God's enemies. It seems like he's turned in on himself and he's looking at, uh, and he's placing himself actually rather in the place of God. Had he said, until we have taken vengeance on God's enemies, on these infidels, on these uncircumcised, like Jonathan had said, you would, you would actually see something of... of a spiritual understanding of the issue, but he's no, he's, he's turned in on himself. And how ironic it is that the people wanted a, a, a human king, they replaced God's kingship, as we saw uh, throughout these chapters, they replaced God's uh, kingship for a human king. And uh, although he started very humble, and we cannot deny that, he started very humble, he's now risen to the place of God. He feels himself, as uh, he speaks of himself as if he's God. Take vengeance on my enemies, he says. But maybe there was a, also another motivation behind all of this. Maybe it was his rec recent uh, experiences. He had just been rebuked by Samuel. He had just been told by, by Samuel that his uh, kingship, his dynasty was rejected. He had just been told uh, by Samuel that his sin had brought about his downfall. And so often, people who have been faced with their inconsistency and with their sin, they turn to religious observance. Maybe he was trying to twist God's arm. Maybe, maybe he was trying to find a way of earning back God's favor by, by doing this real outwardly religious thing of, uh, of calling a national fast, a day of national repentance, a day of, of prayer. Maybe that's what he was really getting at. And that's not too far-fetched, is it? Because even in the last, uh, last week's sermon, we saw, didn't we, 
that as he saw the deliverance, as he heard the, or as he heard the, the, the ruckus that was coming from the Philistine camp, he, he turned to the ark of God, he turned to the priest, he, but he, he was impatient and he, he asked the priest to remove his hand, but, but he seems to have uh, had this outward uh, revival of re religiosity. He, he seems to be renewing his commitment to God, but it's only outward, isn't it? Even though it is so self-centered. Perhaps he's trying to regain the Lord's favor. But brethren, the lesson of 1 Samuel, if, if there is one main lesson in 1 Samuel, as we will see as we go through this book, the, the lesson is that God is not concerned about the outward as much as he is concerned about the the godly obedience. God doesn't care uh, uh, so much about the outward as much as he cares for the inner heart. In fact, in just a couple of sermons, in just a couple of weeks, we'll get to, perhaps even next week, we'll get to Samuel 15. Look there in verse, if you just turn there, since we're in 1 Samuel. If you turn to verse 22 and 23 of Samuel 15, kind of like a bookend for this, for this part before before we move on from Saul to David, it's the bookend uh, for, the, for the, the episode of Saul, we find uh, like a summary, uh, a, a lesson, uh, the main takeaway of this section. Verse 22 and 23, Samuel is going to turn to Saul and he's going to say, as the Lord has great delight, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. It's a sad occasion, because outwardly, as we'll see next week at the, at the end of here of chapter 14, Saul seems to have everything going for him. He has religious observance. He, he has all of these uh, religious uh, traits. He actually, uh, as the end of Samuel 14 tells us, um, that Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side. He actually, outwardly, he seems to be doing quite well. All things considered, there is an issue there. And the issue is on the heart. And God doesn't care as much for the outward as he cares for the heart. And that's not just Samuel, is it? That's, that's the message of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 1, that right there at the beginning of, of this indictment upon Judah uh, by the prophet Isaiah. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and had the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or, the, or la, of lambs or goats. He then tells them, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away evil, of your, the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Hosea, he says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Micah chapter 6, verse 6, with, a, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves and ear holds? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? 
the fruit of my body for, for the sin of my soul? And then Micah says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. It's not just Old Testament, is it? It's not just Old Testament. Our Lord, as he is summarizing the commandments into those two great commandments, love the Lord your God. And then he says, and love, um, and love your neighbor as, uh, as yourself. Because it is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Paul says that there are those in the last days who have a form of godliness but deny its power. It's the same message. Outward obedience that doesn't flow from an, a godly obedience from the heart is worthless to God. The good works of the wicked are, the, are, are abhorrent in the eyes of God. There is a way that we can do the right things for the wrong reason and it is just as much a sin as doing the wrong things outright. Because the heart is not there. And that's a message that we need to hear as we go through 1 Samuel. I think that's the message that our generation, that this society, that our, that our current circumstances need to, to be uh, aware of. We're so preoccupied with external appearances. We're so preoccupied with, with how it looks, with this superficial displays of, uh, of piety and the teaching of, the, uh, of these biblical texts reminds us that it's not just the outward. Yes, the outward will be there, but the outward needs to flow from an inward transformation. I can preach persuasively if I could. I, I'm not saying I can. But if I could preach persuasively enough to convince the people that hear me out on the street and, out, uh, and to change their, the way they dress, to change the way they speak, they would look like Christians. But the reality is they wouldn't be Christians because what is needed is to be born again. That's the, the issue here. Saul is, is doing these things out of, of mere uh, trying to put things right in a, in, a, in a worldly attitude. Instead of seeking the Lord in repentance, that's what he should have done. As we'll, I'll, I'll get to that by the end. That's what he should have done if he is truly sorrowful for what has happened. Instead of looking to, to himself, pleading for, for, for forgiveness for his sins, he is going to start looking at others. It's the fault of Israel. Israel is the ones that are sinning. Never mind that they sin because of him. It's Jonathan. It's Jonathan's fault. Instead of looking at himself. And Jonathan. How does Jonathan come across in this passage? He's come across as someone who feels free and out of, uh, out of any burdened. Uh, burden that his father has put on the people. In fact, he, he has a very good uh, diagnosis of this situation. He says, doesn't he? My father has troubled the land. And now you pause here and you remember all the times in the Old Testament that this kind of language has uh, showed up. Perhaps most notably uh, in the days of Achan. Achan, because of his sin, because he hid part of the spoil that should have been devoted to destruction, because he hid it there in his tent, uh, it said that Achan's sin troubled the land. It's the language that is used here of Saul. His sin 
His oath is very much a sinful oath that troubles the land, that brings a heavy burden upon all. And Samuel, or the author of Samuel, says the people were faint. In a day that they needed strength because they were fighting a, an enemy, they, they actually are, are fighting with a, their hands be, tied behind their, their backs, metaphorically speaking, because of Saul's rash oath. Even Jonathan says, see how my countenance has brightened. See how much better I look. How much better would it be if the people had eaten freely? How much greater the slaughter of the Philistines would have been? You see, self-direction always leads to sin. And when it, that self-direction, that, that, that tendency to make our, up our own rules and solutions like Saul has uh, is, is seen in a position of authority and power, it leads not only to his sin, but it leads to the sin of others. That's what happens here. As the night comes, because the oath was just during the day, right? That's what we read there. The, the, the oath placed is, uh, no one eats anything until evening before I've taken vengeance on my enemies. And as evening comes, as the day finishes, we read that in verse uh, 31, as they had driven back that day from Mishmash to uh, Ajalan, so the people were very faint. But now it's evening, the oath has been taken away, the curse is no longer there, so they begin eating. But they are so famished, so faint, so starving, that they don't even care about the consequences. They don't even care about proper protocol about these things. They start eating. They slaughter the animals with blood. And you, we're not going to go there today for the sake of time. But you know, they were not supposed to eat the animals uh, in that way. They were not supposed to eat uh, meat with the blood uh, in it. The pressure was so great. The burden was so heavy placed by Saul on the people that it actually leads to the people, for the people to sin. And again, the, I, I think we are meant to, to see these places and, and, and mark Ajailan. You know what happened in Ajailan in the days of Joshua? It's when the sun and the moon stood still in that place of great deliverance that day. Now on that, on that same place, on this day, because of Saul's unrighteousness, then in that place there was a place of, of remembering God's great work and power. Now is a day a place that is remembered for Saul's foolish oath. Agilin. And as the sun is setting on that night, on that day, we begin to see the folly of Saul's decisions. Oh, he tried, didn't he? Instead of uh, repenting of, of his own sins, he tried to repent of his people's sins. Now, he calls for the, for the rock to be moved, and he, he's going to do the right thing. And he, he asks for every man's ox and every man's sheep. Again, that's what Samuel had said, isn't it? As if a prophecy was said that when you have a king, this king will do this. He will take away your men, your women. He will take away your ox and your sheep. And here, right at the beginning in the first kingship, there's Saul fulfilling all those warnings that Samuel had given to the people. And yet they still wanted him. So everyone brought his ox with him, verse 35. Then, then Saul says, build, then Saul built an altar to, to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. 
And now Saul in verse 76 says, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them and, and, and until morning. And let us not leave man, uh, any man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And he draws near. He asks the priest to intermediate, to be the mediator of God speaking. But God is not speaking. And the question that Saul needed to ask, is it why is God not speaking? And he asked that question. But the answer he himself gives, I think it is a foolish answer. Because instead of looking at his own life and his own sin that he had committed just before, he starts pointing the finger. Perhaps it was Jonathan. The root of all of this was his unrepentant heart. The root of all this situation that unfolded in chapter 13 and 14 was his uh, uh, lack of faith as he offered that sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to. But no repentance there. But now he wants to enact justice upon his son, doesn't he? Even if it's his son that's sin, he's going to enact on it. And one does wonder, did he know this? Did he know that his son didn't know about the oath? Did he know that his son was perhaps the one who had broken the, the, the oath that he had taken? Was he trying to get rid of his son? Was there a, a degree of jealousness? As we'll see that Saul will be plagued by this prideful jealousness. How tragic and how sad it is that he was trying to seek and identify the sins of others while refusing to address his own sinfulness. That's so often how the flesh acts, isn't it? You know, steer the spotlight from my, away from my sin. Let's look at everyone else's sin. Everyone else's fault. It's not my fault. And he almost kills the Lord's instrument for salvation that day. But the reality is that the Lord undertook there. He did not. The people stood by, by Jonathan. We read there that, that they refused that they refused to allow Jonathan to die because they knew that the Lord was with him. A good thing that they did. I think that's what the text tells us. Their decision on that day was the right one. But I want to draw just a couple of conclusions from this text, teachings that we can take and, and seek to apply them in our lives, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. One of the things that's been on my mind as I read through this, and I'm not sure if this is the best place for us to, to consider, but we're getting to the end of Saul's uh, spotlight in the story, and Jonathan's as well, and I'm not sure if we'll get another good opportunity for this, so bear with me as I, uh, as I try to work this in the, in the from the text. One of the things that's been screaming at me from chapter 13 onwards, as we see how the Lord used Jonathan, one thing that has been bothering me, and I've mentioned this to Peter in conversation, that I never quite clocked it while I was reading this in my normal readings before I started looking at it to preach it. Isn't it interesting 
that Saul is so unfitted to be king. But when you look at Jonathan, Jonathan seems very uh, qualified and gifted to be that king. Very gifted and qualified to be that king. It's just, it just feels, I'll use, I hope you don't take it as irreverent, irreverently when I say this, because I'm not trying to be irreverent, I'm making a point. It just feels like the Lord is wasting Jonathan's giftedness, doesn't it? A man full of faith and obedience, a man who, who, who is uh, the next in line for the throne, just feels like it's a wasted opportunity. Why couldn't Jonathan himself be the king? Why does Jonathan, as we know from the rest of the story, have to play second fiddle to David? When in fact Jonathan at times even comes across as more faithful uh, and, and godly than, than, than actually David is. Why did Jonathan have to be rejected because of Saul's sin? Does this come into your mind? Because it does to my mind. And in a sense, I think it's a normal question. But I also think it is a question that puts a mirror right in front of our faces and reveals something about our worldly way of thinking. Because in our Western culture, being self-fulfilled, being fulfilled, means living up in some way to your potential. As if you're born with this potential, and if you... Uh, and if you're a hardworking individual, zealous and intelligent and, and, uh, and ingenious and disciplined, that your efforts and those things that, uh, if you're gifted and you're, you're, you're hardworking and, and all of that, it, that you deserve this. Jonathan deserves this. Isn't that the way we think in our 21st century uh, society? And unfortunately, it sips in into the, our church uh, into our churches and into, into Christian thinking. We might not be as uh, unsophisticated as to word it in this way, but basically that's how we think at times. We do, cannot help to look at Jonathan and feel like it's a miscarriage of, miscarriage of justice. But isn't that the problem? Because it is not in this world that these things are to be fulfilled. It is not in this world that we are to find our sense of self-fulfillment, is it? And Jonathan knows this. He knows that the kingdom is not his. He knows that the kingdom is the kingdom of God. He seems to know better than this. He knows that the kingdom is not his dad's. But that it's God's kingdom. He knows that he need, his, the kingdom was not his to seize, to rule, or to, or to, uh, to, do, to, to order. The kingdom of God was his to serve. And God called him to serve in whatever capacity he would call. And if God called him to serve in whatever capacity it pleased him, he would serve him faithfully. And that's what he does. I think we'll see as we go through the book of Samuel, this, this is the case with Jonathan. He's not concerned about being the king. He's not concerned about the position. He's concerned about doing what is right before the Lord. And there are more lessons here, but I, for the sake of time, we won't go there uh, this, this evening. 
we have the Lord's Supper. And I cannot help, in fact, I, I couldn't help in the beginning of this week to, to look at the contrasts. Saul, the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, and Jesus Christ, the king of kings. It's as if it's, they are complete antithesis in everything. On the one hand, you have Saul because of his rash oath. He causes the people to be faint uh, as they fast. On the other hand, you have Christ, the good shepherd, the one who leads us beside the still waters, who, who leads us into green pastures, the one who sets up a table for us before, in the presence of our enemies. On the one hand, you have Saul imposing a, a, a fast on the other hand, you have Christ, the good shepherd, inviting us to a feast. Yes, it's not a feast by human standards, but for us who know what this feast represents, it is a feast that far outshines any other feast in the palaces of this world. On the one hand, you have Saul, who self-servingly calls for this fast, this oath, and causes the people to suffer and sin. On the other hand, you have Christ there in Matthew, in the Sabbath, as his disciples were hungry. He gives them permission, and he says, that, and he speaks to the Pharisees of one who is greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath. He is the Lord over the Sabbath, and he allows his disciples to be satisfied in their hunger. On the one hand, you have here Saul denying food. On the other hand, you have Christ in, with the multitude be, before him. And he feeds them gladly. And he transforms the, the few, the, the, the five breads of loaf and the two fishes to the, the two fish. He transforms that scarcity into abundance. We see his heart, don't we? as a complete antithesis of what Saul had. Saul caused the people to sin because of his self-serving attitude in Christ, because of his selflessness and his sacrifice on the cross. He takes away the sin of his people. Where grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. But perhaps the most telling, perhaps the most holy of these moments where Christ feeds us is precisely there on that last night as, as he was about to be betrayed. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples. He didn't say, don't eat until I get vengeance upon my enemies. He didn't say, don't eat of the, until I, 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 I return and, and I, I put them all into, uh, uh, under my feet in subtraction. He said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. The blood is shed on that cross as a symbol for the new covenant. It's a reminder that unlike Saul, who turned the day of feasting into fasting, a day of celebration into a wake. Christ turned a day of fasting into feasting. He turned what would be a, a day of sorrow into a day of celebration. 
and he wiped away all our sins. So we celebrate it this, this evening. We celebrate this evening the, the, the God who doesn't make us faint, the God who gives us strength, as Isaiah himself says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So as we come to the Lord's table, let us lay aside every weight, every sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us look unto Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, and let us celebrate this feast of love divine where our Lord turns our mourning into joy, our fasting into feasting, and where we receive his broken body and his shed blood.